This past week, uh, our family watched a Christmas classic that I'm sure many, if not most of you, have seen. Uh, We watched a Charlie Brown Christmas. I uh, imagine that a lot of you have seen it, but just in case you haven't, because I know it's a bit of an older show at this point, Charlie Brown starts out at the beginning of the movie a a little bit sad. Everybody else is excited about Christmas. Everybody else is looking forward to their presents, to the snow, to the season. But Charlie Brown feels blue. And he's wondering why he feels this way, why he feels so blue. And in fact, his friend Linus tells him, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful thing like Christmas and make it a problem. He says, of all the Charlie Browns in the world... You're the Charlie Browniest, right? You're the, the one that is the saddest, that is the hardest to deal with. And so as Charlie Brown kind of mopes his way through that day, he runs across Lucy, his friend, uh, or sort of his friend. And Lucy suggests, Charlie Brown, you need, you need a purpose. You need a meaning. And so why don't you become the director of our Christmas pageant? So he agrees. And of course, if you ever watch Peanuts, you know there are no grown-ups in peanuts anywhere, right? You never see them. At best, you hear a grown-up off-screen kind of going wah, 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 right? That's all you hear. In this one, there's no grown-ups at all. And so these kids put on this pageant. They're in a big, empty auditorium. They're buying Christmas trees. They're making costumes. They're writing scripts, right? Nobody calls CPS. I mean, you have to suspend your disbelief big time as you watch this thing. But what's interesting is to see how Charlie Brown's leadership plays out in this story. Now, Many of you probably just watched it and you think that's a cute Christmas story. Because uh, we are a pastor's household, I'm always looking for an illustration, right? So it's a lot of fun as we watch these things. And I'm watching and I think it's interesting to see this as sort of an illustration of different leadership styles because nobody wants to follow Charlie Brown, even though he is the rightfully appointed leader because he's insecure and he's fearful. He's kind of a weak leader. On the other hand, everybody listens to Lucy, right? But not because of her magnetic personality. They listen to her because they're afraid of her. Uh, And at one point, in fact, Lucy threatens to punch her brother Linus in the face if he doesn't do what she wants. That's the kind of leader she is. She is Mussolini in a dress, right? She is just a dictator and does not countenance any sort of disagreement. So people do what Lucy says. uh, And as this moves forward, it, it really highlights in this show different types of authority, among other things. And as I watched it, I thought, you know, I I resonate with some of the other kids there in Charlie Brown because I, perhaps like you, I want to be led. I want to have a leader. I want somebody who knows what they're doing, who is competent to solve the problems of my life, solve the problems of the world. Uh, But I don't want a mean dictator. I don't want somebody who's going to force me to do what they want in an angry or abusive way. On the other hand, I don't want a leader who is weak, right? I don't want somebody who cannot make decisions or is afraid. What we really want are leaders who are compassionate and kind, who want our best, but who also know what to do, who are competent. That's the kind of leader we're looking for. And if we're honest, most of us would say that's the kind of leader that our world needs as well. We recognize that the problems of our world are complicated. There's all kinds of sin and crime and challenges in our world. And we want leaders who are kind and compassionate, but also competent and strong. And the truth is, we rarely see those kinds of leaders, do we? Most of our human leaders err on one side or the other. They're dictatorial and abusive, or they are powerless and weak. 
It's been interesting to watch the news over the last several months. And whatever you think about what happened in places like New York or Ferguson or what has happened with the CIA's programs or what is happening with our Congress right now as they just passed this huge spending bill, whatever you think, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, it's clear as you watch the news that there is a breakdown of trust between leadership and those who are supposed to follow. It's very clear to read and go, you know, sometimes leaders don't do a good job, do they? Sometimes leaders make mistakes. Sometimes it's even more than mistakes. Sometimes leaders abuse their authority. On the other hand, followers aren't always perfect either. In fact, the hardest thing about being a leader is having followers. Because those who follow usually think they know better. And all of us, whether you've been in a position of leadership or followership, you know, and most of us have been in both situations, that when you're the leader, it is tempting to abuse your authority. It's difficult to use it well. When you're a follower, it's difficult to trust. All of those issues stem from the problem of sin. The fact that our world is broken at its core, that as men and women, we want to be in charge it's not only true in the world as a whole, it's true in our own lives. We want to create often a little kingdom, a little world around us where we can be in control, where we can be in charge, and we don't want to listen to authority. But what we need is a benign king, right? What we really need is a good and perfect king, someone we can trust and follow, who will lead us where we need to be who will help us make sense of the world, help us make sense of our lives and say, this is where you fit and this is what you ought to do in order to reach the potential that God has for your life. To be right in the center of what he wants you to be doing. Christmas is a celebration of the fact that God's king has entered the world. Christmas is where we pause and we recognize that 2,000 years ago, That baby who was born in a stable is the king of the universe who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy and good. He cares about our needs, and yet he's competent to fix all of the world's problems. And to be honest, most of us, as we go into the Christmas season, we have a hard time pausing and thinking about that because not only of the chaos of the world, but the chaos of our lives, right? My guess is that as you walk through this next week or the next two weeks, you have an agenda lined up and that agenda will help you feel that you know what's going on, that you're in control. So you may look at your calendar and say, you know, I got something lined up every night this week, a Christmas program, a Christmas pageant, Uh, college students, I know you got a couple of things between now and Wednesday happening, right? And you have things in your schedule that are happening that you say, that is what I need to be doing. You have presents you need to buy. And so you look at your checkbook and you say, wow, this is going to be extremely difficult to stay in control of my finances. And so you're anxious and you're fearful as you walk into this season. And all of this chaos in the world becomes all of this chaos in your life. And often in our effort to be in control, we really feel out of control, don't we? I can't manage everything. I can't pull all of these threads of my life together and make something good. So the message of Christmas is that God in the person of Jesus Christ became flesh. John 1.1, 1 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as you move down into John 1, you see the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And the one who became flesh and dwelt among us that we see at Christmas is the King of the universe, who has the power to fix everything going on in our lives. Not only the problem of bad leaders, but the problem of bad followers and a heart that doesn't want to obey. And I think our task at Christmas is to pause and fix our eyes on that king and trust that he has everything under control. So what I want to do this morning is look a bit at the idea of God's kingdom as it's fleshed out in scripture and talk about how Jesus fulfills all of those expectations and hopes that you and I have for a perfect ruler who will fix the world. And then we want to worship him as we go into our week. So we're going to look at this concept of God's kingdom and what we're here for and what Jesus came to do. The first thing we're going to see as we go all the way back to Genesis is this. The whole world is God's kingdom. This world is God's kingdom. A couple of years ago, we preached through the book of Genesis. And if you remember Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world out of nothing, he created everything that you see around you, the sky and the waters and the oceans and the mountains, the trees and the plants, all of the animals. And then at the pinnacle of creation, on the sixth day, he created man and woman in his image. And all of it fits together as God's kingdom. And man and woman in his image are called to be his representatives who rule as his delegated authorities on the earth. That is your role and that is my role. Look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. God made them to reflect him. That's Psalm 8. We actually were made to shine with the glory of God and to live on this world and to reflect him and his kingdom. So he says, you go out into the world and you rule over the fish and the sea, fish in the sea and the animals on the land and every creeping thing on the earth as my delegated representatives. And the idea is that all the world is supposed to fit together under this idea that God's kingdom is here. On the earth. And your place in it is not to rule the whole world. It's not to fix all the problems of the world. But in your delegated sphere of authority. To represent him. And his love and his truthfulness. And his mercy and his justice and all of those characteristics of God. Most of us have an intuitive sense that. The world ought to fit together in in some way, Maybe you go on vacation and you see the mountains and you see the oceans and maybe you come back here and you see flat land and you know there's a disparity there, but somehow all this ought to fit together. And I think maybe I have a role. You have a role in the world. I remember being in college and wondering, what is my place in the world. And often I would tie that specifically to career. What is my job going to be? Or maybe I would tie it specifically to who's my spouse going to be and what will my family look like? And I would look at a, a small sliver of my life and say, what is my place going to be? And often it's hard to fit all that together in your brain. It reminds me much of like a little child or a baby. You know, when a baby is first born, they don't always understand what every part of their body is supposed to do, do they? 
So the legs and the arms, they're kind of all over the place and they don't even necessarily know that this hand is a part of their body, do they? It waves around and occasionally they may catch sight of it and it moves off and they perhaps think this is just a thing flying around. But there comes a moment, I don't know, three, four or five months where that child suddenly notices, hey, that's a part of me. It fits together. I actually have a picture of my, my oldest daughter who's uh, definitely no longer a baby anymore, but from when she was a baby at this moment, when it clicked together, wait a second, I can move this, right? I can grab things with it. It's part, it's part of me and it fits together with me. And I think in the garden, Adam and Eve had this natural sense that God had given them that they were a part of God's kingdom and they had a place, much like a hand or a foot or an eye, nose, mouth, and so do you. That wherever God has placed you, whatever your career, whatever your family is like, whatever your major, you are placed here to represent him, to rule in his stead over whatever responsibilities he's given you. Not to build your own kingdom, so that people will know your name, so that you can feel in control, so that everybody will say he has the best family or the best job, but so that God's character will be represented in the way we spend our money, in the way we spend our time, in the way we use our careers, in the way we relate to our family. We are called to be representatives of God's kingdom, and that's how it was intended to work together from the beginning. problem is we push back against God's plans. And the reason is that the world itself is broken because of sin. And so you and I often say, I don't want to trust in God in all of these areas of my life. Instead, I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. When I trust in God, sometimes I have to let go of control in my own life and give it over to his plans and purposes. And there's some uncertainty in that because someone else is in control. So I will build my own kingdom where I can be in control and I will push back against God's authority. I will go where I want to go. I will watch what I want to watch. I will buy what I want to buy. I will use my time in ways that make me happy. Instead of saying, I want to give those things to God's rule in my life. Right? Adam and Eve faced the same problem. God gave them a perfect world. He gave them the opportunity to reign as his representatives. There was one tree they weren't to eat from. God says, I want what's best for you. And what's best for you is to obey me. What did the enemy say? What did the serpent say? Now, God doesn't want what's best for you. He's a liar. So they grabbed that fruit and they ate of it. And from that moment on, you and I would rebel against God. In fact, the world itself rebels against God. Even those aspects of creation that ought to fit together under his kingdom rebel against him because they're broken. And so people are hurt by nature. And the ground doesn't want to grow what it ought to grow. It grows weeds, right? You can grow a nice weed garden without trying. What you can't grow is anything productive without working hard. Even the earth is broken. Romans 8 says it this way. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Even the world 
is broken. And you and I push back against authority because we're sinners. And so we say, you know what? I want a king. I want someone who will lead me, but I don't trust anybody to do it. So maybe I better be in charge. I'll bet if I were in the Senate, I'd do a better job. If I were the president, I'd do a better job. Bad news. No, you wouldn't. Because leaders and followers are both broken. I'll never forget when I was in about seventh or eighth grade, I had a teacher whose punishment, if we uh, disobeyed, was to write what she called the paragraph. And the paragraph was actually a very long paragraph. It was about eight or ten pages long. And uh, it was all about authority, how you were supposed to listen to her and obey her. And if you didn't, there would be all these consequences for you and for the class and presumably, I guess, for society itself, right? If her class fell out of control. And so she would send it home with you and you had to copy it word for word and return it. And that was your punishment. So my friend Tommy got in trouble one day and she gave him the paragraph to take it home. And he took it home. And when he came back the next day, he showed us what he had done. What he had done was take a huge risk. He had copied the first page of the paragraph. Exactly right. But every page thereafter was a story he had invented about his own little kingdom and his own world. (laughs) And how he was in control. Now, the reality is, I think it took Tommy two or three times longer to compose an original thing than just to copy what she gave, right? He didn't do it because it was easy. He did it because he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to prove a point. And it was a gamble. He was guessing that the teacher would never actually read it or check it. And he was right. Actually, she never did. He never got caught. It's the same impulse that will make a child argue for 20 minutes about cleaning a room that would only take five to clean. To bring it perhaps a little closer to home, it's the same impulse that caused probably the thoughts that ran through your head the last time you were pulled over for speeding. Now, you may not have said those thoughts to the officer, but think about what went through your head. You're pulled over, the officer's behind you, and what's the first thing you probably thought? I didn't do it. He must be wrong, and I must be right. Or maybe you thought, yeah, I was speeding, but why is he picking on me, right? There's real criminals out there robbers and murderers and people shooting people and he's picking on me I'm a respectable member of society I don't deserve this and immediately our heart runs to rebellion now what's interesting is in our world it's possible he was wrong too because we often have this tension between leaders and followers where leaders are imperfect and sinful and followers are imperfect and sinful and so our hearts automatically run toward rebellion And that's the dilemma we find ourselves in. And that is the dilemma that God sends his king to fix. Which is ultimately going to be the good news of Christmas. That God's king entered the world as the perfect king. Who not only could rule perfectly, but could actually fix that problem of rebellion inside our hearts. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament after Genesis 3, you see this begin to develop that God's king is going to fix the world. So Genesis 3.15, you have this hint as God is talking uh, to the serpent, as God is cursing the serpent. He says, you know what, you're going to bruise the man on his heel. In other words, you're going to slither around in the grass. You're going to bite men on his heel. But you know what? He, a man, will crush your head. In Romans 16.20, Paul says that Jesus will do what? Crush the enemy, crush Satan under your feet. That the day is coming 
when the lie of the enemy will be overturned and you'll be able to follow God. And it's going to come because of a king. And so God, as we move through the story of the scripture, God calls Abraham out and he says, Abraham, from your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. That your descendants, the Israelites, will be the vessel through which I will mediate blessing to the entire earth. And so we see this begin to play out as the people come out of Egypt a few hundred years later with Moses and God gives them the law and he says, this is who I am and this is what I want you to do in order to reflect me. And so you think about the Ten Commandments and that's kind of an essence, a summary of the law in which God says, this is what you need to do in order to be this kingdom representative that I've called you to be, in order to be people who are set apart, who represent God and his character. And you know what? The nation of Israel violated every single one over and over and over, starting with the first, right? No other gods before me. That was the one they really had a hard time with because they pushed back against their king. When you get to David, probably the greatest king Israel ever knew, God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give this people a king that they will follow. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I'll raise up your descendant. David, I'll raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, there's going to come a king from your line who will reign forever and ever and ever and ever on my throne and the people will follow him. The problem is that all of David's descendants failed the test. All of David's descendants either worshiped idols or they tried to claim the title of priest for themselves. They used God's name in vain. They violated his holiness. They were adulterers. They were murderers. All of them failed. And so this promise begins to take shape in the prophets that a king will come who will perfectly represent God. That's Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Zechariah 14. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. So the prophets begin to lay out this sort of expectation that a king is coming who will reign over the whole earth and he will be just, he will be righteous, he will be perfect, unlike all the other kings. So as you go through the history of Israel, a new king comes up and the immediate question is, is this the guy? Well, no, not him. Next king, is this the guy? Nope. He doesn't fit the criteria because he's an idolater, because he's a murderer. Next guy, next guy, next guy. None of the kings fit. Remember when my younger brother was a child for a while, he pursued acting. So he would go to these big casting calls for some little part in a motion picture and there'd be a thousand kids there. Most of them more experienced than he was. And the casting director would call each one in, hey, read this line, read this part. Nope, not the one. Next one. Nope, not the one. And they'd eliminate 999 of these kids and one would get through. And the other 999 would go fire their agents the next day. It's interesting as you see the history of the kings of Judah and Israel, what you see feels almost like a big casting call. 
Is this the guy? Nope. Is this the guy? Nope, doesn't fit the bill. Nope, doesn't fit the bill. None of them fit the bill. You end the Old Testament with this sense of where is he? Malachi promises even that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord and proclaim the coming of this king. And that's where we end the Old Testament. Where is he? So that by the time the New Testament is written, there's this anticipation and this tension. Where is the king we can follow and trust? And what's beautiful about the New Testament is Matthew 1.1, the very first verse of the New Testament, announces he's here. Look at Matthew 1.1. It says Jesus is God's king. He's here. Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, that is the anointed king, the son of David. Note what God had promised to David. The king is coming. The son of Abraham. Okay, that's not accidental. Matthew goes straight to those men and straight to this title Messiah to say, you know the one that was supposed to come from David's line? You know how Abraham's descendants were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations? You know how the prophets prophesied this anointed Messiah, this king who's coming? He's here. He's here. And as you look at the announcements of the angels and all of the activity surrounding Jesus' birth, all of it proclaims that king, that one is here. That God's purposes now will be fulfilled in this baby who is born. And so Luke chapter 1, the angel's announcement to Mary says he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, this is the one. The baby inside of you is that king that Isaiah promised, that Zechariah promised, that king we've been looking for ever since the fall. He has arrived. So nine months later, baby is born in a stable because there's no room in the inn because everybody has converged upon Bethlehem for this census, right? Maybe you tried to drive through marathon traffic this morning. You finally said, you know what? There is no room for me in this town. I'm going home, right? Actually, you didn't. You made it. Some of your friends aren't here. It's what happens at Bethlehem. There's no more room. So this baby goes into the stable and is born there. The king of the universe. And what's astounding is almost nobody notices him. There's some shepherds out in a field and Angels appear to the shepherds and proclaim the birth of the Messiah, God's king of Israel and of the world. Isn't it interesting? Why didn't they go to the emperor? Why not go to Caesar Augustus? I mean, he could do something about it. Why not go to Herod? Well, you know why, right? Those men are so wrapped up in building their own kingdoms that just like Herod, any human ruler wanted to kill Jesus. God says, because of this problem, of bad leaders, bad followers, because of this problem of sin, I'm going to work outside the structures of government. And this king is born who will one day take over all the government of the world and rule as God's king. In his new book, God With Us, Glenn Kreider said this, the king of the Jews is born in fulfillment of biblical prophecy and the event is almost completely overlooked. The leaders of Israel, the experts in the Old Testament scriptures miss this significant event that begins to fulfill all the expectations of the prophets. When the creator humbles himself to become human, when the invisible God takes on flesh and blood, he does so without a great deal of fanfare or attention. 
Matthew says the king has come. All the angels sing it, and hardly anybody notices it, except a few shepherds, some Gentile wise men who come from the other side of the known world, and they worship him. The leaders among Israel who do notice him try to get rid of him. Yet God preserves this baby into adulthood. They finally succeed in putting him to death. Three days later, he overcame it. And as you look at the book of Revelation, you see that king, chapter 19, comes back on a white horse. He defeats every authority opposed to him. And you know what he does in Revelation 20? He sits down on a big white throne. Judges all those who oppose him. And then he brings heaven to earth and reigns forever and ever and ever. The message of Christmas is that God's king is here. Because the only way to have a king who is righteous and holy and perfect is for that king to be God in the flesh. And so just like the wise men, just like the shepherds, just like those few who notice, you and I are called not to miss it in all the chaos of the season and all of the events going on globally. We're called to pause worship the king and then say, you know, this week, this month, I'm going to look at my time. I'm going to look at my money. I'm going to look at my family. I'm going to say, how can I use each of these things God has given me? How can I use the sphere of influence in which he's placed me to make the word known that the king is here so I can be a faithful representative of Jesus Christ? It's hard to do because the odds are good that if you're like me, you, you feel a little overwhelmed at Christmas, that there's a lot to be done and you have your agenda, you have your things you need to buy, your places you need to be, people you need to please, and it's very difficult to take time and notice that the king is here. I want to challenge us to a couple of things this morning. First of all, pause and worship the king. Pause and worship the king. Think about what God has done. That he's been working from the beginning of creation to make it known to us that he loves us so much that he would enter into our world in the person of Jesus Christ and provide a way for us to know him and to have life forever with him in his kingdom. Not only restored like it was before Adam and Eve sinned, but even better. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. What we see in God's kingdom are many, many trees of life, lining a river of life. And the idea is that those who know Jesus will be able to be a part of that life forever and ever and ever. Perfect life. So we pause and we worship that 2,000 years ago, that king came. And now he's alive and he is sitting at God's right hand waiting to come back. 
There are a number of ways to do that. You know, my family, one of the things we do around this time of year, we have a little magnetic advent calendar, and each day we kind of open a little wooden door that has uh, a magnet. That magnet may be an angel or a star or a shepherd or Mary Joseph, baby Jesus, whatever. And uh, inside those little doors next to the magnets, uh, my wife has placed little slips of paper with Bible verses to remind us in the morning at breakfast of the coming of Jesus. And then maybe, maybe an activity with the kids. You know, maybe we make... Christmas cookies just to rejoice. Maybe we go look at lights. Maybe we go give food to a food drive to reflect the generosity of our God who gave Jesus. So each day we pause to remember and focus on Christ, right? If, if you don't have time to reflect on Jesus during the Christmas season, man, your schedule's too packed. You got to take some stuff off. Figure out how can I pause? Uh, students, hey, even in the midst of finals, I know that feels like it's impossible, but can you do that over the next few days, even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes to say, the reason I am here is to represent my savior. So pause and worship the king. And then secondly, submit to his kingdom authority. Consider, you know, over the next few weeks, uh, you may be making New Year's resolutions. Maybe not. Maybe you've given up on those over the years. But as you evaluate the year close to the end, and as you think about the next year, think about this. Am I using my calendar? Am I using my money? Am I engaging with my family, with my neighbors in a way that proclaims that Jesus has come to bring life? And not only will we have a perfect king, but those who know him have the spirit, and the spirit can solve this internal problem of resistance against authority. And one day, that problem will be gone for good. And we'll live forever with him eternally. Does your life center around proclaiming that and submitting to that? You may need to go back over this next year and really really think through the way that I spend my money, the way that I use my time. Those are two of the primary ways we can look and say, is my life consistent with God's purposes? I love the way that the Charlie Brown Christmas ends. And I apologize if you haven't seen it. I'm going to spoil it for you. But uh, in frustration, Charlie Brown, finally, when he can't get anybody to cooperate, when his tree is, you know, this terrible little kind of stick of evergreen that nobody likes, he gets frustrated and he says, can anybody just tell me what Christmas is about? Why are we doing this whole thing? What is Christmas about? And I love Linus, who had said earlier he could not memorize the lines for the play. Linus comes up and says, I can tell you what it's about, Charlie Brown. Right? And he walks to center stage, and the lights shine on Linus, and he quotes Luke 2. Right? Now in the fields, there were some shepherds watching their flocks. Suddenly an angel appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? They were sore afraid. He says it from the King James, which I I like that translation. They were so afraid, it hurt them. Sore afraid. And what does the angel say? Fear not, for I have good news of glad tidings. For today, in the city of David, a Savior is born, and he is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. You'll find him wrapped up in little baby swaddling clothes. The King has come, and they all pause in the midst of that chaos, and they say, this is why Christmas is here. And that's my prayer that you and I will be able to do this week. That inside our hearts, the peace of God through his spirit will fill us to the extent that even when there's chaos swirling in our world, 
maybe in our families, maybe at our offices, as we head toward Christmas, we pause and we look and we say, God entered our world so that we could have life to overturn our rebellion, overturn our sin and fix the world. And that's what we are here to proclaim. I want that to be the message of my words and the message of my life as we move toward Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful so much for your word as we see how you've been arranging things from the beginning of creation to show us who you are. We thank you for Jesus, the once and forever king who died for us the first time he came and rose again and will come back to rule. We thank you that this world belongs to you, including our little corner of it. There's no, there's no area of our hearts, no corner of our lives that you don't see and that you cannot control and lead. You are a perfect, wise, compassionate king, and I pray we would orient our lives around following you. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.